0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. King by force withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to Your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for You. And we pray these things in Your name, Amen. So we're going to be in uh, in Second Chronicles today. Second Chronicles is in the Old Testament. So we're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter thirty-six, starting at verse. 14. So if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, um, the best way to find Second Chronicles is to go to the first book of the Bible, um, which is called Table of Contents. Um, and, and maybe about a quarter of the way down, you're going to see Second Chronicles. Go there and turn to chapter 36. Christians are an Easter people. We live in the truth that Jesus has died for our sins to reconcile us to God and to one another, and that he rose again in glorious victory over death itself so that we may live in confidence of the salvation that Jesus offers through his grace. This is our everyday reality as Christians. In fact, our lives together as a community revolve around this truth. This is why we meet on Sundays as our primary worship service and not on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, because Sunday is the day that the Lord rose from the grave. It's this day that the tomb emptied, and therefore there is now no more condemnation for those who believe. The chains of sin are broken. Our enemy of death is no longer to be feared, and we are reconciled to our God. And We rehearse and we remember this truth every single week. We are Easter Christians. It's important for us, however, to remember not only Christ's victory over sin, but also the reason that a victory needed to be won in the first place. It's important that we recognize that even if we belong to Christ, that our sins are forgiven, but that sin still lingers within us. I once heard an evangelist uh, tell a story. I'm sorry. I once heard a story about an evangelist who was preaching And he was preaching about how it's not good enough just to be good in our own eyes. And he was trying to prove his point. Uh, And he, he asked sort of a rhetorical question to the congregation that was gathered. And he said, is anyone in here perfect? Is anyone completely perfect? And in the back, an elderly man raised his hand. And astonished, the evangelist asked him, you, sir. Are you claiming to be perfect in every way without error and without fault? And the old man replied, No, sir. I'm standing up for my wife's first husband. That's a slow burn. You have to think about that one a little bit. So we have to have an intentionality towards recognizing our continued sin, confessing it, and warring against it. It's much more fun to talk about forgiveness and paradise and grace and mercy, and all those things are central to the Christian faith. But in our focus on these things, we must not neglect to reflect upon the sin that still resides in us in order to be more aware of the significance of the price that Jesus paid and to participate with the Holy Spirit to root out that sin, to confess it, and to resist it. The rhythms we live into, into together as a church provide for this opportunity as we walk through the season of Lent. This is a season of intentional reflection on our sin and then preparation for Good Friday and for Easter. Lent is not fun, but Lent is needed. It can be a time of significant healing, cleansing, and renewal. But first, we have to do the dirty work of peering into our sin. So then, in the spirit of Lent, Let's look into the Scripture, into 2 Chronicles 36, starting at verse 14. This chapter takes a look at uh, some of Israel's sin. Uh, it looks at God's posture towards that sin, and then what action he took in response. So the person of char- the person and character of God never changes. So in observing his past interactions and how he's dealt with his people in sin in the past— it gives us insight into how he interacts with us over ours. So here we go, Second Chronicles chapter thirty-six, starting in verse fourteen. It says this All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. So let me give some historical context. Israel is the people of God of the Old Testament, whom he promised to bring redemption to the world through these people. In his covenant with Abraham, the father of the Israelite people, he promised to be their God and he promised to provide for them a land and protection within that land. And in response, they were to be his people, to pursue the truth of his righteousness, to seek the things of love, peace, and goodness that he revealed to them in his law and through his prophets. But at this point in Israel's history, here in Second Chronicles, everything has gone off the rails. There is wickedness throughout. If you want more details, go read the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations. In verse 14 here, it says, all the officers, priests, and people were likewise exceedingly unfaithful. And so he uses the word likewise because for the first 13 verses of this chapter, he's been showing how all the kings have been unfaithful. So officers, priests, kings, people, all exceedingly unfaithful. The author of Chronicles paints a pretty bleak picture here. So what is, what is their sin? What is this unfaithfulness that he is talking about? First, it says that they followed the abominations of the nations. So sometimes we think of sin simply as something that each one of us do wrong. The individual sins of commission, stuff that we, that we do wrong on purpose or by mistake. But sin is more significant than simply a legalistic breaking of a rule. See, what's being described here in Second Chronicles is that Israel found their truth and their standard of right and wrong no longer in God, but in other sources. They followed the abominations of the nations. They looked to another source for what is good and what is true and what is right other than God. So yes, they broke the rules laid out in the law of God, but more significantly, this is a rejection of the kingship and sovereignty of God. Their sin is not a victimless crime. This is personal in their understanding and the person and position of God. And in our lives today, whenever we make something else authoritative and it shapes our behavior, we're doing the same thing. Jesus makes the distinction between serving God and money, and he says you can't do both because the pursuit of money at all costs makes us find our safety and our comfort and our joy and our security in something else besides God. <clears throat> Honestly, God doesn't care about how much money you have. He cares about what rules your life. He is sovereign. He is our king. That is his place. And here's the glorious good news. He's not simply positioning himself as your king in order to oppress you. He's jealous for you because he knows that under his kingship is where you will truly be safe and flourish. He's not asking you to give up greater things in order to settle for whatever it is that he has to offer. He knows that what you think is greater is lesser than the least of what he has to offer. In other words, he wants what's best for you. And a call to submission to his sovereignty is a call to wholeness, to joy, and to life. It's also important to see here in Second Chronicles that this is not just individual sin, that sin always spreads, sin always becomes public, sin always organizes, and sin is corporate as well. This was not just a bunch of individuals sinning on their own. This was a group of people sinning together, corporate sin. This chapter also says that, that Israel worshipped idols, that they, uh, they polluted the house of the Lord. And so this is not simply just breaking worship rules. It's, it's giving the glory and affection that belongs to God to something else. And in fact, something that is false and lifeless. And again, this is a symptom of the condition of their hearts. So they've rejected God in his kingship. They've rejected God in his worthy ship. And this pursuit of idols then shaped their behavior. Because what is true, friends, what was true then and what is true now is that we become what we love. And so Israel slipped into atrocities such as sexual deviancy and temple prostitution and even child sacrifices. It's the natural trajectory when our affections become disordered that we would become like the things that we long for. So Israel's worship of false idols resulted in the abuse of the vulnerable. God wants our affection because that puts us on the trajectory of becoming more like him in holiness and purity and health. And that leads to the health of our society as a whole. You can see sin work this same pattern today in the scourge that is pornography. It's an industry that sells unreal fantasy. It's an idol, purely pleasure with no conflict, beauty that is manipulated by editing software that creates a false sense of what beauty really is. And then when we indulge in those idols, we steal glory and affection and attention from those to whom it truly belongs. From your wife, from your husband, from your future wife or husband, even your children. And with those with a call to singleness, it affects how you see every relationship with every man and every woman. And then we have to cover this practice with lies and secrecy, which further damages our relationships and brings anger and shame. And then, what is created is a multi billion dollar industry that gives rise to sexual exploitation, sexual slavery, sex trafficking, prostitution, and more. And this is all due to our pursuit of idols. So, God's anger over sin is not a petty jealousy, He knows the results. And sin is real and it matters. Sin is more than just doing bad things. Sin is disordered affection. It's loving something over and above God. It is cosmic theft by stealing the glory of God and giving it to other things. And then when our behavior follows, it leads to brokenness, pain, and the state of the world that we are currently living in. This is the results of sin. So, If the importance and the significance of sin has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what was God's response to Israel? Well, verse 15 says this, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So what was God's response to sin? Compassion. He has compassion on his people and on on the church. And how does he show his compassion? By sending warning and by revealing righteousness and its promised fruits. He sent his prophets to Israel. He sent prophets to tell them to come home, to repent, to believe, to return, to come back, to be reminded of their sins and the results and to know the holiness of God and to know that relationship with him and to be exhorted to leave that sin and to return to the Lord. He sent prophets to Israel and he sent his son and the Holy Spirit to the church today. He sends you preachers to proclaim his truth and to exhort you to repent and believe. He sends you Christian friends and co-workers and church family who desire you to turn from the things that are leading to your illness and turn to God in his truth where we find life. So God is slow to anger. He's compassionate and full of mercy. But look at verse 16. God sent the prophets to Israel, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. What an ominous phrase. He continues to reach out to have compassion, but they don't listen and they mock his messengers. Until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Yes, the Lord is slow to anger, but that doesn't mean he doesn't get angry. That we can make God angry. We need to let that sink in, that we can make God angry, that sin is a serious thing and not to be trifled with. He's slow to anger, which means he doesn't fly off in a blind rage and he's not inconsistent and volatile, but he is just. And we sometimes mistake grace and mercy for weakness or passivity. But wrath is a real thing. It is an opposition towards unrighteousness. It is a resistance towards the sin that destroys. And we want wrath, friends. This is not something that we need to fear. This is something that we need to embrace. We want wrath because we're not okay with injustice. We, we're stirred when we see evil and oppression, and we long for rescue, for the guilty to be punished, for the oppressed to have a vindicator. The judgment of God in the Old Testament is seen as a good thing. They live in an unjust world, and they need the judgment of God to make things right, because we cannot have justice without judgment. And so we want God to fight against what is harmful and what is hurtful and what is unjust. We just don't want to admit that our attitudes, actions, and affections can be harmful, hurtful, and unjust. In other words, we want wrath for everybody else. And we want mercy and grace for ourselves. You see, when faced with our sin, we can do one of three things. We can, one, seek healing and forgiveness in God. Or we can, two, try to convince ourselves that our sin is not really sin. Or three, we can pretend that there are not truly any repercussions for sin. The problem with the second two options is that you and I, we're not God. And that wrath is an unavoidable attribute of God. And one that is not to be looked down upon. but One that is actually to be treasured and longed for. But you say, Oh, wait, wait, Dan, here's the problem this is, This is the Old Testament that you're reading from here, and're we're, we're in the New Testament time now, and so God's not like that anymore. And so I hear what you're saying, but the question that I would ask in response is, Have you read the New Testament? Because there are moments of significant wrath against sin in the New Testament. there's a great story in Acts that is the, the basis for really strong sermons on giving when Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land, and they withhold the giving from the church, uh, and they come in and then lie about it, and one of them is struck dead uh, and carried out the back door, and then the other one comes in a few minutes later without knowing what has happened, uh, does the same thing, and is also struck dead and carried out the back door. Today's sermon is not about giving. We'll handle that at another time, but, but the point is, friends, that, that wrath is not something that was only in the Old Testament. And most significantly in the New Testament, we see that there is a promise of a final judgment against sin, against those who pursue it and profit from it. It is this wrath that Jesus removes from us. 1 Thessalonians 9 and 10 says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Wrath is not contained in the Old Testament because it is an attribute of a loving God. The reason that we need deliverance is because there is a coming judgment that sin will be punished and defeated and ultimately purified from the new heaven and the new earth. And wrath is an attribute of God because wrath is an extension of his love to not let us stay in the destruction that our sin causes. Parents, you understand wrath. When you see your child being disrespectful and destructive, you stop them. When they were small and they twisted away from you and out of your grip and they ran out into the parking lot, you chased them and you grabbed them and maybe swatted them on the bottom and told them no. Because you know that if he runs out into the parking lot, he could be killed. And you would grieve and it would damage the life of the person who hit him. You are angry and you react in wrath as an extension of your love. Ultimately. What you want is for him to change his heart, to not want to run out into the parking lot. And God reveals himself as our parent who loves us and exhibits wrath as an extension of his love. Now, this truth should shake us again. It's Lent. We have to think about these things. These are, not, these are not the most pleasant sermons to preach or to listen to, but they're vitally important because the truth of the significance of sin and the, and the reality of wrath should shake us because sin has cosmic, cosmic significance, just like Israel's. Our sin is not minor. It's an offense against the holy God of the universe and a part of the rebellion of God's people. And we should be moved to a place of repentance and belief, not to be scared and intimidated into a relationship with a loving God, but to recognize that holiness and righteousness wins, that God wins, and that our pursuit of sinful lesser things is fruitless. And it leads to damage now and eternal separation from God himself. So on one hand is a loving, good, pure, truthful God who desires to have mercy and compassion and to bring you into a family and to straighten out all that is crooked and broken in the world. And on the other hand is the coming wrath that resists, that pushes back, pushes back against and ultimately destroys sin itself the coming wrath should make us long to belong to this loving and holy god in the case of israel here in second chronicles chapter 36 there's been generations of sin and wickedness so what happens to them what's what's this wrath look like if you look in verse 17 It says, because of all this unfaithfulness, therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin or old man or aged. He gave them all into his land and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small and the treasures of the house of God and the treasures of the king and his princes. All these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. And he took into exile in Babylon all those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. So to summarize all of that, sin has repercussions. And and it affects others. Sin is not a private thing. As we said, it always goes public. And for Israel, the sins of the kings, the priests, the officers, the people, led them to follow the nations. And they got the nations. In the end, they received what they were looking for. They were received what they were pursuing. They were, they were following the abominations of the nations. And the nations came. And it brought war and exile and a removal from the promised land. See, this is an important point, that they got what they were asking for in their sin. God's punishment was then and is now oftentimes to let us receive what it is that we're pursuing. Israel pursued the nations and the nations came and it resulted in their destruction, alienation, humiliation, and shame. And the same is true for us. Sometimes the biggest temporal punishment that we receive is God's letting us get what we're pursuing. And our sin leads to destruction of relationships, of order, of security, of relationship with God, and of the very fabric of society itself. But friends, we are Easter Christians. Because God does not leave us in our exile, in our separation, in our fear. He does not abandon us. Look what happened to the Israelites after 70 years of exile. In verse 22, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah was fulfilled to restore the people, to let them go, to bring them back into Israel and to begin to rebuild, to rebuild the people of Israel, to be to rebuild the house of God. And friends, the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, he offers us a return from exile and our sin. He offers us a, a, a reconciliation with God and an exodus from death itself. The New Testament is full of language like you who are far away have been brought near. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you were enemies of God, you were children of wrath, but now through Jesus Christ, you can be restored and healed and reordered in your affections and on a trajectory of holiness through Christ. And that trajectory of holiness and the church rising up as a people is what will heal the broken society that we live in. It's on the truth of God and through his compassion and his mercy. So what do we do with this? What do we do? How do we apply all of this to our lives? Firstly, this, take seriously your sin. It's a big deal, and it will go public, and it will have drastic effects. Repent. Don't take for granted the compassion of God. Heed his warnings. Hear what his word says. Let us war against our sin. Let us confess where we need to confess. Let us seek reconciliation where we need to seek reconciliation. Let us not see sin as a normal part of life, but let us pursue holiness and truth as uh, as the purpose for our being. Do not take for granted the compassion of God. Repent, believe, and be baptized. Let your sin be forgiven. Return through the grace of God. Let your shame be put away. Let him restore you in his image to pursue him in life and in truth. And then be a part of the people of God as as your life is rebuilt through the community that all of this, just as sin is not individual, neither is healing just individual. It happens as a part of the people of God, blessed by the Spirit of God, in the place of the family of God. What is being laid before you today through this scripture is the truth and the dirtiness of our sin, the unavoidable wrath that comes against it because sin destroys you and the world and God will not allow you to destroy yourself or the world. And also the answer to that wrath that is Jesus Christ himself who brings forgiveness and mercy, who brings new life and new hope and new light to dark places. Because Lent leads to Easter that sin leads to Good Friday, that the cross leads to the tomb. And we are Easter Christians. So friends, I beg you this day, I exhort you, I challenge you. Let the Holy Spirit peer into your heart. The things that are secret that you've been hiding, the sin that you have been pressing in and feeding and letting control your behavior, give that up to the Lord Jesus Christ seek forgiveness, seek healing, and don't do it on your own. This is not just something that's an issue between you and God. This is an issue between all those that you have hurt through your sin as well, and healing is just as real as sin, and grace is greater than any sin that you have committed or any that you will commit. So yes, I have the difficult work this morning of bringing a dire warning But I also have the glorious honor of being able to proclaim to you the good news of the risen Christ that you can repent and believe and be forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord, move in our hearts. Sin has become so normal for us, so much a part of our everyday rhythm that it has become a false trusted friend and we can feel vulnerable without it. So Lord, let us come to a place of longing for your truth, of trusting that your ways really are the right ways, of, of seeing that your truth really is the truth that leads to life and health. And let us, Lord, put down those things that we have settled for, those things that bring destruction, those things that are not of you. Lord, let us turn away from our loves and our pursuits that are not of you to pursue the great things that you have called us to and freely give out of your compassion and mercy. Where we sin, let us be aware. Let us confess and repent. Let us war against our sin. And Lord, let us not believe the lie that we are called to do this in isolation or as 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 isolated individuals, but that we are called to be a part of repentance and belief and healing through the people of God. Let us turn to the community for help. Let us turn to the community for support. And so that as we see your great power at work and your grace and mercy and your transforming of hearts and lives and societies itself, that we will all raise our hands in worship to this great and glorious King who is the one who saves, who is the one who redeems, who is the one who brings life. And we long for the day, Lord, when your Son, Jesus Christ, will come again when he will remove sin from our midst and there is a new heaven and a new earth and God will dwell in the city of his people, then we will sit around your table with no sin to divide and no one to steal your glory. Lord, we pray, hasten that day and let the immediacy of that day move us now to a place of repentance and belief into seeking you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.